0: From the McCourtney Institute for Democracy at Penn State University, I'm Michael Berkman. And I'm Chris Beam.
1: I'm Jenna Spinelli, and welcome to Democracy Works. Back for another season, you guys. The summer has just flown by, uh, and and here we are with with lots to talk about and a new co-host to join the mix this season. Very excited to welcome Candace Watts-Smith to the team. Candice, it was, it was a pleasure talking with you earlier this summer about your book, Stay Woke, and um excited to have you as part of the team. I'm thrilled to
0: be with you guys. Mm-hmm. Welcome, Candace. Yeah. So, so this is we... part
1: of your, your bucket list, I understand? Indeed. I mean,
2: I'm a, kind of a podcast addict in this multitasking world, so you can listen to good podcasts and do a bunch of things at the same time, so... It's nice to be here with you guys, yeah. and, and it's especially nice to be uh, joining an award-winning
0: podcast. <laughs> <laughs> now, that was really your bucket list.
1: Okay. So, uh, no shortage of, of things to talk about. We're in mm-hmm. the midst of the, the conventions as, as we record this. We know, by all intents and purposes, that the traditional start of the, the presidential campaign Season, um, though you know nothing is really traditional about this this campaign season, uh, so I thought maybe we could start there. You know, Michael, what what's your sense of where the the parties are right now and, and how they've been adapting to all the curveballs that the pandemic has has thrown their way?
0: You no, know, we're used to seeing campaigns uh, barnstorm the country after their convention, sometimes in bus tours, sometimes by going to large rallies. And of course, it's going to be difficult for them to do that. And so a lot remains uh, unknown still about exactly how they're going to uh, organize their, the actual campaigns. And there are a lot of questions, too, about how the campaign is going to take place on campus, uh, where organizing and registering students is a... Uh, an activity we usually see quite a bit of in the fall semester, and it's uh, you know campus doesn't look like campus ever looked before, so it's unclear how that's all gonna how that's all gonna take place. Uh, we are starting to see the outlines of the strategies the parties are gonna pursue. The Democrats, I think, feel quite secure in their base right now and are uniting a large coalition in opposition to Trump. They seem to be presenting a kind of team oriented approach. And they're focusing heavily on women, on black voters, and on, I think, probably professional suburbanites. Uh, Republicans, the first night, and from what I see of the schedule, seem pretty base-oriented, turning out the base in large numbers. Uh, But they, too, are appealing for some of the same suburbanites and women, I think, in their case, on the basis of fear and terror. And not really a team Kind of approach. We're not seeing a wide spectrum of Republicans, but we are seeing a lot of Trumps. So there's a real emphasis on family and on the Trump family and on personality, and of course painting the Democrats as uh, as socialists. Uh, we saw quite a bit of quite a bit of that, and I, I think we're also seeing the uh, as we've seen throughout the Trump term efforts to pick off some minority support or at least to keep black black support down.
2: I mean, I think also it's important to keep in mind about the heterogeneity of the groups that both the Democrats and the Republicans are working to to gather and garner and turn out. Um, because even this business about suburban voters and the American imagination is a white person, but we know that suburbs are really multicultural mm-hmm. and actually are pretty representative of the American population. So You know, these campaigns are all going to have to be careful about the language that they use and the targets that they go after um, if they're going to be successful in these kinds of strategies.
0: Any election with an incumbent is very much a referendum on the performance of the incumbent. And we usually think about that in economic terms. But in this election, it's hard to separate the economy from COVID because without without dealing with the covid problem it's going to be very challenging to deal with the economic problems and so you saw the democratic strategy of really focusing on covid and the uh, the job that the Republicans or trump administration in particular have done in dealing with it and the trump people going back to the state of the economy before covid and saying you know if it weren't for the Chinese mm-hmm. introducing mm-hmm. this virus into the you know, into the American bloodstream, we would still be seeing that same, same sort of economic performance. Yeah, I was
2: actually having a Twitter conversation with a bunch of political scientists. Um, There was an ad, I mean, it was slick of um, Kim Klasic, I think is her name, um, in Maryland. And essentially, she is a black conservative Trump supporter who um, is making this pitch that if black lives matter, then we have to get him out of, we have to get these cities out of the hands of Democrats. Mm-hmm. And so we were just kind of talking about, well, who is this ad for? Because it's not for black folks, but what it might do is to say, Hey, you know, some of the things that we've seen on the surface seem pretty racist, but maybe not because we have a person here who. Um, is ostensibly a representative of the African-American community. And maybe it just kind of takes the edge off.
0: So, you know, let me return to one other point that we, we kind of talked about a little when we started, but but haven't returned to. I think there was something else interesting here about like how the two parties are going to approach COVID and the campaign going forward. You know, the, the Democrats were very intent on signaling through all kinds of ways uh, that they take COVID seriously, that, you know, they want to model a certain sort of behavior, even to the point of absurd, I thought at times, like clearly Biden and Harris can be in the same sort of COVID bubble and can get within six feet uh-huh. of one another. But they were very, you know, they were make, taking real precautions to like not let them do that and to be masked. And, and they were masked when they went outside. And and the Republicans, on the other hand, I mean, they had people at these at some of these events, it, although it was unclear how many, uh, but but it seemed like at times they were speaking to crowds. You know, the only thing yeah. I would want to add to that is that for Biden,
3: it it also references this idea that um, we are following science and we trust science, and scientists have to lead in terms of what do we do and how do we respond. Mm-hmm.
2: So one thing that comes to mind to me is I. I Often start when I'm a policy class about um, how FDR and Hoover framed what was the cause of the Great Depression. And FDR, you know, was kind of like, this is a systemic problem and we need to fix it in a big way. And Hoover was more like, well, the reason why this is a problem is because of something that happened over there and it's just influencing us. So we can just keep doing what we're doing. And we'll be okay. And I think that's kind of the messaging that we're seeing from Republicans and Democrats this year is, okay, COVID is, you know, from the Republican perspective, is just something that got in the way. But if we keep doing what we do, then we'll be fine. Whereas Democrats are saying COVID is showing us that we have issues in healthcare and education and employment and labor laws and And race relations. And we need to fix the systemic issues. And so even just kind of the understanding of the problem is very different from the parties, right? And their messaging, even this business about masking or unmasking is all speaking to how they view this issue and what message they want to give. Is this a structural systemic problem or is this a side effect of something that someone did over there and we should just try to keep moving on? Uh, to get back to our old normal instead of trying to create some new normal.
1: And, and, you know, that is kind of, I think, a a really great description of the situations that are are playing out in cities and towns and schools and, and households all across the country right now as people decide... Should I send my kids to school? Should I not send my kids to school? Should I go back to work? Should I work from home? You know, all these kind of considerations. Um, And we've been talking thus far about the presidential campaign, but there's certainly a a whole host of of other races happening up and down the ballot from, you know, Congress and governors down to city council and, and school board. And these issues are certainly not isolated to the national stage and are going to permeate in their own ways throughout these uh, local races. And Candace, I know that uh, you spent a lot of time studying and thinking about local politics. I'm wondering, you know, what, what you're thinking about for this fall or, you know, how you're thinking about the issues we've just been talking about through that more localized lens.
2: Sure. And I hate to be cliche on my first day on the job, but... <laughs> All politics is local. Right. Um, And, you know, I think one of the things, just as you're saying to to reiterate, is that we tend to talk about the 2020 election when we know that it's the 2020 elections, plural. Right. There are going to be 435 members of the House up for election, 33 senators, 11 governors. And then there's I don't know, I read somewhere that there's 19,429 municipal governments, And so then how many elections are we going to have across those spaces? Um, And so, you know, even this business of voting itself is a state issue. The states get to say who votes, the state gets to say where and how and how many days um, and so on. And I think that over the summer, all of the issues or many of the issues that have come to the fore around Policing, child care, school quality, health, unemployment, protests, housing policy, labor rights, racist symbols, racism, generally speaking, food security. All of these things have to be dealt with mostly at the state level and the local level. So I think, um, you know, and, and I think we'll talk a little later about budgets and, um, you know, that is a state and local issue. Right. The federal government can, of course, put some money in the pot. But um, states have so much control over all of these. And essentially for me, I think what's really important about studying the states and local governments, again, to be cliche, is that we have, you know, states are laboratories of democracy, that we can see if something is going to work or if it's going to fail. Is it going to spread to other states and localities or are we just going to... you know, you know, states can look and see if there's a good model, um, or if they can learn from mistakes, right, to produce better policy um, for their
0: citizens. Yeah, we're we're especially seeing this with COVID responses. That's right. Where, you know, there there are there's wide variation in how states are treating. You know, what kinds of businesses can open, what, what orders for the schools. Uh, masking rules and even within states uh, there there are localized differences and you know there's a lot of data out there right now that people are seeing in real time and, I mean you, you, the the New York Times does a great job every day and there there are plenty of other sites too so you, you sort of see in real time how these different policies are translating mm-hmm. into uh, into rates of infection within the states and hospitalizations and, and all of that kind of. Kind of thing. I just
3: I want to take this opportunity to have my first disagreement with our (laughs) with our new co-host, and (laughs) and 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 I do that with some trepidation because I she knows a lot more about this than I do. But maybe should stop right there, then Chris. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) You know, know, fools walk in where angels fear to tread. I have heard, and I find persuasive the argument that. It is no longer the case that all politics is local; that all politics is now national, and that and you see some of that reflected in the in the Republican convention last night. That that this is not a Republican party anymore. This is Trump's party, and everyone who belongs to it some has some uh, burden to demonstrate their. Um, they're being on that team. And so even these little local races are manifesting the national argument between the Trumpian republicanism and um, you know this Biden. So there's two worldviews, and they're I manifested throughout, um, not just in terms of Congress, but also in terms of these local races where you wouldn't think it is, uh, and where it has not been heretofore. So that's my proposition. Candace, what do you, what do you think about that?
2: I think that the constitution would also disagree with you.
3: <laughs> <laughs> oh, Stuart. <bring> that
2: <laughs> right. So the 10th amendment says that if it's not laid out here for the federal government to do, it is the state and it's the people's business. And so I hear what you're saying that a lot of what's going on is viewed through this kind of national lens, but there are still issues that are particular to localities right I mean even the size the budget the mm-hmm. demographics all of these things there are so many specificities at the local level that sure maybe there's a, a national rhetoric and and you only made a point about members in the Republican Party you didn't say anything about the Democrats mm-hmm, who, mm-hmm. you know so I I think that there's actually mm-hmm. just more complexity um, that we just I mean, so much of our news is national news. And that's because we have fewer and fewer local news outlets that tells us the intricacies of what's going on in our States and our cities and our counties. So Mm -hmm. I, I, respectfully disagree. Yeah, yeah, yeah.
0: I think actually there's a both sides are right kind of thing here, because <laughs> in, in, in a lot of ways, elections are just been nationalized. And, you know, there's less ticket splitting and all of that. We just know that going, going into it. But on the other hand, as we talked about on some shows last year, the federal government's strategy on COVID was to let the states do whatever the heck they wanted mm-hmm. and to not really try to impose a national solution. And so- And you do really have this kind of, you know, this wide variation in what people are experiencing from COVID, both in terms of the restrictions on their life and the extent to which they're experiencing COVID. Uh, You know, I mean, I think just here in neighboring towns and communities, they just really haven't had COVID. And so they think all the shutdown is, is kind of craziness. Mm -hmm. And on the other hand, in state college, we're all like hunkered down and, braced for this, uh, you know, for the invasion of students and and what that's, what that's going to mean. I also think this is an election more than any other, where we really are focused on the different rules and states for voting. And and I never remember so many discussions (laughs) about the different, you know, rules and regulations for ballots and post office shuttings and everything else going on in, in different kinds of states. And so there's, that's definitely going to be be a factor here. You know, one thing that is striking that I think Chris was referencing, I just want to get this in, Jenna, before you mm-hmm. before you move on, is that I've been, you know, if you read like comment sections on different mask rules, on student gatherings, on all this kind oh, of- Oh, don't
1: read the comments, Michael. That's yeah. like the first rule of the internet. Don't read the
0: comments. <laughs> <laughs> they are. Or, or what I've taken to reading actually is the parents page on Facebook, mm-hmm. for the oh. Penn State parents page, because mm. I was a Penn State parent. And uh, it's, it's really striking how the sort of national arguments have filtered down mm-hmm. into the, you know, the very local minutiae of, of what kinds of rules and regulations are being said about whether you trust science or don't trust science, whether or not it's all a plot and this, this kind of thing.
1: We had Charles Stewart from MIT on the show back in the early days of the, the pandemic to talk about the steps that States were were already starting to take, and, and localities were already starting to take at that point. And and uh, perhaps we'll have him back on this fall to to check in on where that work stands. But you know, while we were uh, on break over the summer, the Postal Service and the mail kind of took on a, a political or was was politicized in in a, in a way that it really hadn't been previously. And uh, so I'm just wondering what where you all stand on on voting by mail now, and if that has perhaps changed at all since since the start of, of COVID?
3: You know, I am thinking that, you know, Candace, you know, played the Constitution card. And, you know, and it is the case that the post office and the elections are both in the Constitution, right? And so the idea that, not to mention, it also had, I think, 91% approval rating. So it just strikes me as politically bizarre to go after this, let's just stipulate that everything that Joy said is correct, right? Everything about the inefficiencies and the wasted money and the overtime, all that stuff—it's all correct. Let's just say that you're going to do that now. You're going to do that now. You're going to do that in the middle of a in the middle of a pandemic and three months before the election, and. I mean, I think it's just a gift wrap to the Democrats to say veterans aren't getting their checks and senior citizens aren't getting their prescriptions. I don't I, I just don't see the logic of this. But anyway,
2: so I, I would just to chime in, um, I, maybe this could be our theme, Chris. Um, is,
3: <laughs> Why not?
2: Is even in this post office debacle is this idea that. In each state, so for example, I did my first mail-in ballot for the primaries. Yeah, me too. And, you know, I just kind of fooled around. I was like, yeah, yeah, I'll get to it. I'll get to it. And when I opened it, you know, like two days before, Mm -hmm. you know, it was due, I just assumed that it just needed to be postmarked by election day, but it needed to be received by election day. And so then the question is, well, is it going to get there tomorrow if I put it in the mailbox today, or do I just need to drive it over? And so even each state is going to have a different set of rules about, no, it must be received by this day, mm-hmm. or it must be postmarked by this day, which is going to have another set of ramifications about counting. And so there are some states that are going to be able to say, OK, well, we're going to wait a certain number of days to get the ballots that were postmarked by, by the day or you know, or not, um, and so even then, this business about the post office is going to have very particular ramifications for each state and each locality yeah. as well. Just I just want mean? to say
3: one thing. I completely agree with all that. Mm-hmm. And the thing is that the four of us are empirically verifiable outliers in terms of our knowledge about The election and how these things are supposed to work and the idea that all of this is going to go smoothly with 330 million people is just, I think, not going to happen.
0: Yeah, I I don't think this is just about the post office, actually, because once those ballots get in, they have to be counted (laughs) and and they're going to be counted at the county level. It's going to take a week, weeks, (laughs) maybe weeks to Mm -hmm. actually count these things. And that is going to be a very uncomfortable period in American politics. Uh, And I know I I certainly am anticipating that period with a sense of of dread and foreboding, Mm -hmm. which maybe comes more naturally to me than some of you. But I, I clearly have that because I think that just judged on the polls and judged by the very deliberate strategy, of uh, the Trump campaign to discourage its own supporters from using mail-in voting, uh, that election day voting can be disproportionately Republican and mail-in voting can be disproportionately Democratic. And that means that in many states, what you could see is one result on election night and and a result that changes gradually over the weeks as counties get around to counting them. Because remember that many of these count, well, you should know that many of these counties it's not true in all states. Are not allowed to count the votes until election mm-hmm, day. Mm-hmm. It's not like they're sitting there counting them as they come in, and right. then are just going to add it to the numbers. My
3: feeling of of trepidation, which you know we Michael and I normally share at some point, is around the fact that because so much of this is uh, unknown territory, so much of it is uh, confusing. I just don't think we know. I mean, I think the polls generally assume a kind of uh, ordinariness to this election. That will not be there. And mm-hmm. therefore I just I'm not confident that those numbers, are going to be reflective of the final votes, not because it's not what people think, but because of all these other reasons. And um, and that makes me
0: trepidatious as well.
2: Yeah, um, I think there's a lot of education that needs to be starting right now,
0: mm-hmm. right?
2: I mean, I think that that's one of them is to get our expectations about when we're when we may or may not know what the election results are. I think even just this business of mail-in voting, there are going to be a lot of first-timers or second-timers who don't know that they should sign their name here, that it should match their signature on their license. You know, Mm -hmm. all of these kind of nitpicky things that, if you've never done it before, can trip you up and can ultimately lead to your vote not counting, quite literally. So it seems to me that it's incumbent upon well the federal government, you know, Donald Trump is not going to do this right now. It's I th- I don't think he sees it in his to his advantage to educate the American voter about what it is that they need to do and to expect in order for us to have an election where everyone who wants to have a vote counted gets counted.
3: Partisans should be doing that too. And but you're right, uh Donald Trump does not see this as in his interest. But because every state is different, every state has some responsibility here as well. You agree? I agree with <laughs> it, but I mentioned there's gonna be less of it in sta- in among state level leaders who are Republican because they're gonna follow Trump's lead. So I'm gonna have my cake and eat it too.
1: <laughs> yeah. So you know, the other we've been talking about the the Constitution here. The other constitutional thing happening this year that we haven't touched on yet is is the census, which is set to wrap up at the end of September. If I'm thinking about the well, the they're
0: now, wrapping September up the 30th. Right.
1: Yeah, what's that?
0: They're wrapping up a month early. Are haven't they? Oh, okay. told to, to wrap up a month early.
1: So yeah, I mean that is also playing out here, and um, you know we've we've talked about the, the census on the show before, but I think it kind of bears repeating, I mean, how does the fact of who is counted or or who's not counted, um, how is that going to have, have ramifications moving forward? The
2: thing is, is that we know that the census at its very core, right, is to allocate seats in the House of Representatives, right? This is purely political power and voice, right? The other thing is that the census has many other uses. So allocation of resources, right? There are one and a half trillion dollars in federal grants and aid that get allocated based on the census. Um, There's issues of civil rights and equity that people use the data to figure out who's doing well in our society, who's not, where should things go? Um, It's also about identity and representation and racial discourse. Who lives in this country? What does our country look like? Um, and then also just kind of scientific stuff. And this ranges from, you know, 18th and 19th century pseudoscience around mulattoes and octoroons and quadroons, but also even now, today, in a more scientific way, not pseudoscience, that. You know, even I use census data to figure out how are policies influencing different populations. So the thing about the census is that it's taken and then the data is used for 10 years. And so, so many of the things that are going to happen based on this count, which is likely to be an undercount, is going to have ramifications for at least 10 a decade.
0: Yeah. Yeah. And that, that assumes it's accepted. I I believe that the Congress actually has to accept the census. Hmm. So the Census Bureau does the census, but I believe it gets submitted to Congress and Congress has to accept it. And, uh, I think there's some real doubts about that from the very beginning. And, you know, we've talked about that. I think one of our first shows, uh, was with, uh, Jenny Van Hook from the demography, uh, group at Penn state. And, uh, talking about problems with the census, to politicization of the census, even this decision to close it up a month early, uh, which seems to have something to do with making sure it's done during the Trump administration instead of perhaps uh, moving over and doing that in the middle of a pandemic when we know that many people have been uncomfortable allowing census takers to come to their door, not to mention People don't necessarily want to be census takers and come to anybody's door. So, I mean, there are all kinds of issues here with how the census has been conducted that I think there's going to be a fight about in Congress about whether or not to accept it. And I, There have been times in American history when there hasn't been a census. And so you're using the same data for apportionment and everything else for 20 years. Uh, that, could, that could happen again. I, accepted, I but, think, but whether or not you accept know, it.
3: Candace is right. There's very likely going to be um, an undercount because of COVID and because of stopping a month early. Right and that's my point that it's this is not going to be scattered benignly through the nation it's going to be people well, who are people of color who are marginalized who may not be citizens and who don't have white skin and you say the same thing with the effort to raise this citizenship question in the in the census back earlier this year it's the same objective and it is. It is using this mechanism that is supposed to be utterly nonpartisan in a partisan way, and um, I think that is does compromise the results. But it also compromises. Um, our institutions. If you know if everything is partisanized, then why trust anything? And so it's this two-stage disaster. one in terms of the results, one in terms of what it does for people what people think about government.
2: So I think it's important for us to remember and to consider the fact that the Census Bureau has never been apolitical, that it's always been used by different entities for different reasons. People lobby, The census to get certain categories and pieces of information on there. And people try, I mean, you know, even as you were talking about the before times when the conversation was, should we have a citizenship question? Mm -hmm. So people use this data for all sorts of things. It's not a neutral institution, and the data is also not neutral.
3: I think that's true. Although I think people use it that way and they try to push. The, the way the results are tabulated, you know, every dimension of it. But the people who work for the census, Jenny Van Hook, Jenny Van Hook has been on a couple of times and she is, you know, has a, a background in the census. And she says that that agency is um, very proud of its nonpartisan dimension. So, I mean, I think everything I, but I but don't- leadership dispute, is political. Right. I don't dispute anything you're saying, but I do feel like, um, they're getting kind of dragged through in, in a way that that they have worked hard to separate themselves. Well,
2: this is- Maybe I should just clarify to say, not the people who do the day-to-day work, but right. even just the questions that are on the census, right. yeah. the framing of the questions, right? Like, I mean, even we can look over the course of the census since 1790 and look at the number of racial groups and categories that have been included or not included over time this you know even this idea this year that you're asked about your country of origin or something like that right after you're asked about your race the fact that these questions are on here are are not just because right um people want to have the information and the way they choose to use it is one one thing or another, but I think it's important for us to consider that the census is used by multiple entities in multiple ways, and so they, they want to get certain information. So I think that that differentiation between professionals who do certain work and the mass population, that in... What I think most of us would agree is a good, solid democracy that these populations should look similar, that we have no expectation. Right. If we believe that talent and ability are equally distributed across different kinds of groups, then we should see uh, different kinds of groups and people represented among elites, among regular folks, or let's not say elites, let's say people who make the rules, Um, And people who implement the rules. Um, If we see that there's a big difference between these two groups or these groups, I think that's a signal that there's a problem for democracy and who's getting represented, who gets to say, who gets to make the rules, who gets to implement the rules, and who's going to have to, um, you know, abide by the rules.
0: Yeah, Candace, I mean, isn't this why one of the suggestions you sometimes see raised about police departments is that police should come from the communities they're policing? Because otherwise, you're often faced with, you know, police departments that look very different from the communities that they're policing.
2: Yeah, I mean, I think that's at the core. I think there's a couple of things going on there. One is um, that we presume that police officers of color are going to behave differently. And of course we have to keep in mind that um, bureaucrats work in a particular set of constraints, right? And so now we're seeing that really it's the constraints and the rules that are um, in addition to the demographic diversity or lack thereof, but also that, you know, one conversation that is becoming more prevalent is that many police officers don't even work in They don't live in the communities that they work. And so then there's an issue of where is our tax money going? It's going outside of the communities. And so, again, that's a different kind of representation question that you're not employing the people who live here. Yeah. So I, I think there's actually a kind of multi layered issue of representation influencing yeah. on on this question yeah yeah
0: I mean to, to just zoom out a little bit on this and maybe we can't go too much into it on on this episode I mean there, there is this whole issue that bureaucracies need to be representative just like legislatures and bodies mm-hmm. that are designed to be representative need to be representative and you know we've seen that in schooling. Where it, makes it, where it makes a big difference. We've mm-hmm. seen it somewhat in police where it makes a difference in, and in other areas as well. In those yeah, streets.
2: I mean, these are the little nitty gritty aspects of democracy that we don't really think a lot about, right? We'd like to talk about the president in Congress, but the fact of the matter is is that street level bureaucrats, police, teachers, social work, mean lady at the DMV, right? These are the people who are the face of the government that we interact with on a day-to-day basis. And they do the work of implementing the policies that we supposedly as you know, citizens mm-hmm. ask to be implemented. One thing that we didn't get to talk about, because there are a lot of things to talk about, is the Black Lives Matter and this yeah, kind of absolutely. summer unrest and uprising. But I think in in response to the question about budgets, um, is that we're also going to see this business of protest at the ballot box too, and we're going to see it probably in two ways. One is going to be in policy, right? People are seeing things that they hadn't really noticed before, mm-hmm. and the conversation around what we ought to do moving forward is probably going to change. But then we're also probably going to see different candidates arise who might not have come to the fore before, and so. Two that come to my mind are Trayvon Martin's mother, Sabrina Fulton, who ran in the Miami-Dade Board of County Commissioners and lost by 331 votes. But she was there and probably changed the conversation around some of the issues that needed to be addressed. Or Cori Bush in St. Louis, who defeated a 10-term incumbent um, in the House primary. And her interest in politics came up out of the 2014 Ferguson uprisings. So I think that we're also going to see some connection between the protests that we've been seeing in Black Lives Matter and this election, and then also just moving forward, right? 2020 is not the last election we're going to have, inshallah, um, that, you know, we'll have midterms um, in 2022, um, Mm -hmm. and that all of these issues are going to come to the fore in perhaps even a more, as we're saying, catastrophic and (laughs) urgent way than
0: you know, at the Republican convention, any imagery of the protests were violent, violent. and had much more to do with the response to them, mm-hmm. often over the top responses. Uh, while anytime the Democrats showed the protest, it was sort of celebratory mm-hmm. and a way of promoting their sense of diversity and that everybody's in this and everybody's, you know, joined in together in this movement. You know, I think that Republicans are being somewhat effective in changing public opinion on this. I mean, we had seen pretty dramatic mm-hmm. changes in favorability for Black Lives Matters after the initial protests. I've seen some evidence. But I think we're going to see more that they're chipping away at that with this kind of approach, which I think they feel like they they definitely need to do. There, there was a group that gamed out some of the post-election outcomes and what might happen. And almost every single one of them ended up with massive protests in the streets, often with mm-hmm. violence yep. in the streets. So I think much more is yet to come <laughs> as we move into this move into this election season in terms of protest around Black Lives Matter and, and more broadly about protest activity. There's no
3: guarantee this is going to go south. It's going to change. There's going to be dramatic changes as a result. Yeah. Um, there's going to be very, you know, clear changes after this election, whatever happens. But that doesn't mean that they necessarily have to be
0: negative or bad. Mm -hmm. Right. Look, the primary elections leading up to the sum of them anyway, you know, had lots of people turning out to vote. Mm -hmm. We might see some very high voter turnout. People certainly seem to be kind of engaged.
3: They know it's important. 81% say Mm -hmm. it's a a stark contrast. I think
2: we've also learned a lot about how governments work and what they do Mm -hmm. over the past three years we've learned a whole lot we learned about emoluments we learned about what the census does we learned about how mail-in voting is different across states we've learned i mean we've learned about the fact that there's actually not a law that says chokeholds are not illegal right these are things that people thought were common sense things that are not actually policy so People have learned a lot and it will be um, a, a hopeful note then would be that people are actually going to be more informed when they go to the,
0: to the ballot
1: box this year as well. All right. Amen. Thank you, Candace. Yeah. <laughs> Thank you for, I think we'll, we'll leave it like there.
0: Candace close us up with idea. Yeah. Yeah.
1: Yeah. yeah. <laughs> All right. Well, uh, lots to, to cover this season. I think we will return to many of these topics about the election and beyond throughout the rest of our season and uh yeah no shortage of of things to cover and and we look forward to helping all of you uh understand these crazy times that we live in so from the democracy works team thank you so much for listening and we will see you next week